This is comedian Ben Frank on Tell Craig Your Story podcast. Hey, everybody, how's it going? Uh, thank you. I am Ben Frank. A little about me. Uh, for five years, I worked for the NBA. Thank you. Uh, I told that to a guy last week, and he goes, Ooh, what team were you on? <laughs> I'm like, Well, I was on the marketing team. <laughs> Not the point guard for the Lakers. Sorry to disappoint you. But uh, I am single in my early 30s. I went on a date the other day with a girl who was 22. Uh, mixed reactions to that. Wow. <laughs> Don't worry, I realized she was too young for me. Uh, she spilled a glass of red wine, and instead of using a napkin to sop it up, uh, she used her hand to scrape it back in the glass. <laughs> yeah, sometimes a girl does one thing and you're like, mm, that's not a wife. <laughs> At least not yet, maybe she'll get there eventually. No, the, the date did not go well, though, because uh, she started telling me about herself, and she goes, I practice jujitsu. <laughs> I'm like, really? Because I practice ju Judaism. <laughs> you know, then she starts flirting with me. She's like, you know what? I think I could beat you up. <laughs> I'm like, wow, you're that good at jujitsu? She's like, no, but I'm very anti-Semitic. <laughs> So yeah, date didn't go very well. Hi guys, Craig here. Welcome to another edition of the podcast, Tell Craig Your Story. Today we'll be speaking to comedian Ben Frank. Now Ben is born in the USA, in Massachusetts. He did his degree in the US and then decided to start working uh, overseas with an international company. He then moved to Shanghai, China, where he started doing open mic and comedian shows. As Ben uh, developed his show, Ben became one of the best comedians in Shanghai and did numerous tours around China. To this date, he has performed in 10 different Asian countries around the world. After the restrictions were released in Wuhan, Ben was the first person to do a stand-up comedy show, and that show is also available uh, to be streamed online. A couple of months ago, uh, Ben Frank did his farewell shows, and that was some of the best shows that I, I have seen comedian do in Shanghai. Uh, there were some amazing performances. He was very, very funny. He made the decision to move back to the to New York, you know, and to make a career being a comedian. But before we go, please go to our website. We are at Podbean. Tell Craig your story at podbean.com. We have a link tree there. 
That'll tell you exactly where Tell Craig Your Story podcast is streaming. We are on all the major streaming services, Google Podcast, Apple iTunes, Spotify, to name a few. We also have a YouTube channel. Make sure you're subscribing to get all the latest updates. We want to make sure that that is ticking over. And uh, make sure you're telling your friends about Tell Craig Your Story and get them to share the, the link. We also have VK for our Russian listeners and WeChat for our Chinese listeners. At Till Craig Your Story. All right, here we go. This is part one of my chat with Ben Frank on Till Craig Your Story podcast. Hi, Ben. How are you going uh, this morning for you and tonight for me? Pretty well, pretty well. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, so tell us, sort of all sort of wandering uh, back here in Shanghai, uh, how's everything been going for you back in New York? Uh, things have been going well. I mean, I've only been here for a couple of months. I think it's been a, in a process of, of adjustment, but also managing expectations because when, you know, when you move, I, I think everyone knows this from when they move to China or when they move back from China. Uh, you know, when you move across the world, everything, everything in your life changes for the most yeah. part, whether it's, you know, whether it's, you know, your job, where you're living, you know, your day to day relationships, all that stuff. Um, so when every single thing is new, uh, it can be a little over, overwhelming at first and, you know, trying to get yourself, get yourself started in a, in a brand new place again can be a bit daunting at times, but I think I've made, made a lot of good progress in a short period of time. But yeah, it's 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 interesting though cuz uh, from from a, from a comedy perspective, you really uh especially when you move to New York cuz you know, New York is just tons of comedians very competitive no matter yes. kind of what you did in your previous spot that you were, starting over relationship-wise at least right. cuz you don't <laughs> you don't know that many people. I've taken a couple trips to New York where I've done gigs, so I've met some people, but it, that's not the that's same what, as living here day to day. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to ask. Um, have you ever sort of lived there before? So you've obviously just uh, had some holidays there. Yeah, so years ago, I've, I've lived in New York, um, but that was before I started comedy. So it was a, a very different time in in my life and kind of what I was what I was doing. Like right out of college, I, I lived in New York for a year or so working in consulting, but so that's a, you right. know, completely different lifestyle than right. what, I'm, what I'm doing now. And, and you didn't think of maybe going back actual home. I do believe that you were sort of born in Boston and Massachusetts. Is that right? So it, yeah. have they, has that got a good like a comedy scene there or, you know, it's just like Australia, you go to Sydney or Melbourne. So obviously New York is the place to go, right? Uh, so I mean, Boston has a decent comedy scene, and uh, especially the the Boston scene back in like the '80s and early '90s was very legendary. Right. Uh, you know, tons of amazing comedians came out of there at, at that time, um, and that and then it was it was one of the real hot spots uh, at that point. It's not quite as strong now as it was before, and people who live here who came out of Boston definitely say that it, if if you compare it. There's a clear drop off now, just in terms of one, the quality of the comedians, but also just the amount of stage time that's available to you there. It's right. still a decent comedy city, but um, I don't think it has the status now um, that it would have had, say, you know, 35 years ago um, as, uh, you know, an up and coming comedy city. Yeah, right. Understand. And obviously, L.A. would be another place to go, like Vegas. Mm -hmm. No, not really. Sure. More, more LA. So I've done, I did one trip to LA a few years ago and did some comedy there. I mean, LA, it does have a lot of stand up and if not for New York would probably be the number one choice for me to go. It, it really kind of depends on your, on your own personal preferences. I think for me, LA, if you're kind of doing stand up, but also looking to also do acting and TV work and kind of do a combination of all those things, then LA might be better because it's, you know, right. kind of a little more, a little more embedded in, in the industry, so to say. But if kind of what you're doing is you want to focus on stand up, at least for now, New York just has even more stand up than LA does. 
So yeah. if your if your goal is to just get up on stage as much as possible, then New York's probably the place. Also, kind of I since I've lived in New York before, I kind of kind of understood a little bit like how living in New York works and the rhythm of living in New York. LA would have been uh, a lot it's a lot different of a lifestyle in the sense that LA is very sprawling. Um, it's almost impossible to live there without without a car. Um, whereas New York, uh, you know, almost nobody here has cars. Yeah. So you 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 just kind of get around on public transport, and it, you know it's kind of very easy to get around. So it it's a very it's a very different lifestyle in terms of how you gotta negotiate your day and get around the city in LA versus New York. Yeah. And in terms of your shows that you've had since you've left Shanghai. How have they been going? How have the fans have been reacting to it? I'm sure you've got a lot of material now spending, uh, you know, a couple of years here in Shanghai, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was in, yeah, I was in Shanghai for, for seven years and then kind of coming here. The shows have been going pretty well, but I mean, it's a really, it's a really mixed, mixed bag in the sense of like kind of what you're going to get on each individual show because depending on, you know, as I said, I'm doing, you know, last night was a midnight show on a Monday and nice. even doing a, a midnight show on a Monday, we actually drew pretty well for that show, but getting a lot of people for a midnight show on a Monday is maybe getting 10, 12, 14 people. Uh, you know, sometimes on a slower night, you might be performing there to five or six or seven people just because Maybe there aren't that many people out at, at midnight on a Monday, <laughs> even at, even in school. So, but then sometimes if you'll do it that same club, you do a weekend show, you know, the room's packed and it's got 75 people in it. Um, and then that feels like a real show. And then it's kind of the same thing with, uh, if you do shows at individual bars, like independent bar shows, those are also kind of hit and miss. Those can be, those can have small crowds, but they can be really supportive crowds or it can be pretty sparse. And you're performing to mostly comedians. So it's really a mixed bag, but I've, so I've been doing a bunch of that stuff and also open mics in New York as well, just to get more stage time and practice new jokes. But, you know, open mics in New York are very different than say an open mic in Shanghai. Yes. Because uh, open mics in Shanghai um, are more, more like, more like real shows in the sense that we usually have real audience for an open mic in Shanghai. Um, and it kind of feels like a real comedy show where as in New York, um, you would almost never have real audience at an open mic. Uh, it's always, it's always just the what other comedians are performing on the open mic that happen to be there. Um, so yeah. either you're performing to other comedians or you're performing to an empty room. For, so, for so so an open mic in New York is like you're testing like your jokes to see whether you get a laugh out of it, right? Or is that what you're trying to do? Yeah, it, yeah exactly. Um, but the, the that testing process can be tricky because especially if you're if you're performing to an empty room, it's like, well, how do you judge that? But also, <laughs> yeah. even if you're performing to a room full of comedians, that doesn't that doesn't give you a good gauge on on how material works in front of regular people a lot of the right. time because mm -hmm. comedians laugh at laugh at different things than normal people. <laughs> so, right. so it's like, it's a, it's especially at this point in the process, it's a necessary thing to do to kind of test things out and maybe get a little bit of an idea of if they're funny. And so, and you can get a, you can get a read on it, but there are certain types of jokes, especially kind of more racy, edgy material Yes. Where you'll get a bad read on it at an open mic, where you'll get like huge laughs and you'll be like, "Oh, this is so funny." Then you do it in front of like real people and they're horrified. It's a process of kind of learning to listen and kind of what what the feedback means on different shows. And um, but then for me, getting kind of the relationships here where I'm comfortable enough in some of these rooms now, where I feel like I can try new stuff. Cause that was the most difficult thing for me when I first got here is that every show I did and even every open mic I did, no one had ever seen me before. So you feel pressured that you got to do your A material. Uh, you got to right. impress people. Um, whereas now I've been here a little while and some people know me. So I'm like, okay, if I'm in this room, um, I can try some stuff out. It's not a big deal. But at the beginning, I was like, oh, I got to be great every single set. I got to do, you know, jokes I know work, which is fine to do that. But then you realize some shows, and especially open mics, are rough to the point where 
uh, you can do your best jokes and none of them are going to work. So, <laughs> yeah. and that's what I was going to talk about. Like, uh, how do you, how long do you keep a joke in, in your set or are you really trying to sort of put new material in? Like, and especially now that you're in New York, you're sort of sticking to what you, you're good at or you're, you, you know, you, you're wanting to put new material in there all the time. No, I mean, I've been writing, I've been writing a lot of new stuff since I got here, uh, which mm. is good. I mean, I only, you know, I would say a very small percentage of that has made it into the act in the, in the sense of stuff that I now like feel comfortable doing in front of like, a, you know, a packed room. But yeah. I do have a, a few jokes that I've written since I've gotten here that, you know, you know, already kind of work consistently. Um, on stage, that's good, but I'm always writing new stuff. I'm always trying stuff out at open mics. Um, because I, I was kind of a, of the mindset that, you know, I think I have a lot of jokes from my time, you know, in China that will work here. But if, but if I'm doing the same jokes that I came here with the whole time, it's just not going to be dynamic and it's not going to be style. Kind of, it's not going to be organic. Yes. And, Whereas if I'm writing new stuff all the time and the act is evolving with me living here and it's incorporating stuff, you know, from me being here a few months and all the previous years and it's a combination of those things, that's going to seem that's going to seem more natural and it's probably going to connect with people better than if I just, you know, kind of have the same act that I had, you know, from from China and I'm not incorporating anything new at any point. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go back. One of my first questions that I always ask is, is the uh, pandemic, the COVID, we all live through it. But but for you, you were here in China and we don't get to hear like stories from people that, that you know, are here in China that actually lived here. Um, mm-hmm. And they're always very, very interesting. So can you just sort of tell us leading up to the pandemic what you had to cancel and how you sort of uh, got through it, you know? Yeah, I mean, overall, I was very fortunate in the sense that I think the pandemic probably ended up affecting me less than less than almost anybody, you know, in the world that I could probably think of. Uh, it definitely did have an effect, but it affected me more at the very beginning because I, cause, you know, obviously you remember kind of the pandemic started right around Chinese New Year, and because it was Chinese New Year, I had some time off and I actually flew to the U.S., you know, from Shanghai on like January 18th. And it was really over that weekend that COVID started to make yeah. news as a news story. It was really like to the point where I remember that Friday night I went to a show in Shanghai and then I, I think I flew out Saturday the next day. And like when I was in Shanghai, no one was talking about COVID then by the time I landed in America, everyone was talking about it. Right. It was, you know, like my relatives were asking about it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't know. And then it was basically like four or five days later, uh, Wuhan was locked down. And then I was supposed to come back to China from the U.S. on, I think, maybe January 29th. Right. And then at that point, I was like, oh, let's postpone a little bit. I don't know what's going on here. So I postponed a couple days. Then I postponed another week. But by February 8th or so, my job was like, hey, I think we need you to come back. So I actually flew back from the U.S. back into China during the point in time where, as far as we knew, it was only in China. And everyone was like, are you sure? What what are you doing flying back into China (laughs) at this time? It doesn't make any sense because everyone was like, that's the one dangerous place. It's everywhere else in the world is safe, or at least that was the perception at that point in time. You know, even my, you know, my, my dad is a very rational, logical person, not someone who's, you know, usually scared by any of this stuff. And I was literally on my way to the airport in New York, you know, trying to fly back to Shanghai. And I was literally, I think, at the airport on, you know, February 8th, 2020. And he was like, don't go back. He's like, don't, he's like, don't do it. Don't go back. And I was like, I'm at the airport. I'm, I'm flying back. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, for him to be like that, you know, because he's not a panicky person. He's not someone who normally does that. You know, I think it was emblematic of how people were feeling at the time because it was it was very uncertain. But also I had just visited my family and, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, if I stay in the U.S., what am I going to do? Everyone else there have their lives. They're not shut down yet. They're working. I can't just hang out all day with them. They've got they've got things to do. So I was like, my whole life is in China. 
at this point. I kind of need to go back. And, you know, I had been talking with my friends in Shanghai. They all seemed fine. Mm. So I said, I think it'll be fine going back to Shanghai. So then I, I kind of was working there for like a week. But then once I got back, my job was like, hey, I think we kind of were having everyone take like a couple weeks off. Mm. So then a couple of my comedy friends, I, I heard about this maybe on like a Monday at noon that, you know, my boss was like, hey, we're, you know, we're not really, you know, going to be working for a couple weeks. I saw a couple of my comedy friends were in Thailand in, in Phuket and they had just, they had just gotten there. And I was like, how long are you guys going to be there for? They're like, ah, oh, probably a few days. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'll come meet you. So I booked a flight and 24 hours later I was on the beach with them. Uh, cause that was what a lot of people don't remember or people maybe from Australia or, or from back in the, the U.S. don't know is that during that first period of time, in like basically February and the first week of March, because the perception was that China was the one unsafe part, people who lived in China or around China were flying to other parts of Asia to quote unquote escape the virus or go on vacation or, you know, wait it out because they thought, oh, maybe this will be a couple of weeks. I'll wait it out somewhere else, then come back to China when it's safe. That was the, you know, thought process at the time. So, I went, you know, hung out with the, with those with those guys uh, in Thailand. had a, had a good time for you know a little while. Went flew back into China, but I was also scheduled. I had um, a couple dates to do uh, headline shows in Cambodia the first week of March, like March sixth uh, and seventh. And I had been, you know, I've been planning that for months and I kept talking with the guys in Cambodia. I was like, Hey, you guys still want to do the show? Like, I still want to do this show. And they're like, Yeah, well, let's still do it. And I don't know if you remember, but Cambodia at the time, they were one of the most lax places about the virus. They were letting everybody in. So I was like, Well, if there's any place that's going to allow me to do this, Cambodia will let me in. So this was March 6th, March 7th. We went along with the shows March 6th. I did, uh, Phnom Penh. And March 7th, I did Seam Reap. And it was interesting because I think when I was in Seam Reap, during my show on that Saturday night, I think people were getting, like, emails from their job telling them not to go into work on Monday. Right. So I flew out of Seam Reap on, like, Monday, March 9th, got back into China, and then it was literally, like, two days later that in the – at least in the U.S. that we had kind of the issue where – um, these NBA players, players started testing positive and that mm. kind of shut down all of America. And then that was when China w- started to be like, okay, we're hard quarantining everyone coming from abroad. So I got in to China, back into China right before it got kind of hard to get back in. And then two and a half weeks or so later, they just closed the borders completely. Yeah. Um, so, so I got very lucky that I was kind of able to move around a little bit, yeah. but also back into China in time. So I was very lucky. And, and what were the shows like there? How did the, was it just foreign expats or was it actually, you know, the locals there as well? Uh, some locals as well. I'd say mostly, mostly expats probably, but uh, some locals as well. Uh, Phnom Penh show was great. It was kind of in the kind of the upstairs little attic of this craft beer bar. So it was really kind of yeah. this, uh, you know, one of those, one of those like ladder type staircases to get up, you know, somewhere. And, uh, but, you know, kind of a really tight room that the audience was great. Uh, Seam Reap was a little tougher of a show. The, the toughest thing about doing, finding good venues for comedy in Cambodia, for anyone who's been to Cambodia, you can attest to this, um, especially in Seam Reap, but also in Phnom Penh as well. Uh, it's, it's hard to find venues that are completely inside or close mm. to the outside. A lot of venues that are doorless or windowless that are, or that are open air that you just kind of walk into and you mm. sit down and really the separation between outside and inside is kind of, you know, either non-existent or so for comedy, that's, you know, not really optimal because you can't totally control um, you, you know, control the environment, both, you know, climate wise, sound wise, uh, a lot of, there, a lot of distractions can be happening. Definitely. Um, so yeah, like, like the bar in Seam Reap, it was, you know, it was a bar. It was quote unquote technically indoors, 
but I don't think it had empty windows and I don't think it had <laughs> doors. So it's also open air. There's, yeah. there's a roof, but they're, you know, open windows and open doors. So it's a little bit. And don't they have like like the one main road or like one or two main road like Bar Street? I think that's what that was what was it called like in San Reed. And uh, yeah, so I could downtown. I could hardly, I could imagine where you performed at because the music's just so loud, just thumping with like techno and all these uh, disco beats. So I could, yeah, luckily we were like a couple blocks like oh, we weren't in the main downtown, but we were in right. one of those kind of one of those kind of avenues or one of those streets that goes off the main downtown and maybe like, you know, a few, you know, maybe a few hundred, few hundred meters, you know, away down one of those streets. So it was a little bit quieter of an area. So it wasn't as kind of popping as, yeah. as that downtown. <laughs> Definitely still things, things happening. That's, yeah. that's, that's awesome. And then after that, was it like online work? I mean, I don't think too many people can sort of have to guess what sort of job you had while you're here, a foreign person in China. You know, most of the time it's a English teacher or a school teacher. Right? Well, so so at that time, so for most of the time that I was living in China, I actually wasn't a teacher. Uh, I, I came, I was at the end, uh, but I actually, I came to China originally to work for a real estate developer. Yeah, um, right. Wow. So that yeah, that was back in 2014, um, but that job didn't last that long. I was working for it, it was like a U.S. China joint venture. So the bosses, there was a Chinese parent company, but the bosses of the uh, kind of American subsidiary that I was working for were like former executive vice presidents of Simon Property Group, which is kind of one of the biggest real estate developers in the U.S. Um, but that didn't last that long, like four or five months after I started working for them, kind of a, the Chinese parent company um, pulled the plug on it. I don't know. Have you ever heard of the the company uh, Red Star? Like they, they have these furniture, these big furniture mall outlets. I have heard um, of Red Star, actually. Yeah, yeah. Red Star, Maxline. Um, so basically they were our big parent company and we were retail shopping mall development subsidiary of right. theirs. So I was gonna I was gonna get to this a little bit later. So why don't we take a big U turn? I do believe yeah. that you were born, as we said before, um, in Massachusetts, uh, yes. in Boston. Hopkins is it like is this like a like a small city? Yeah. So so I was born in and grew up in Hopkinton, which is a small small town. I don't know what the population is now. When I lived there, it was probably between. 10 and 15,000 people. So not, uh, not a big town, but it's, it's most famous for being where the Boston Marathon starts. Oh, uh, right. So it's a basically about, you know, 26 miles due, due west of Boston. So it's not too far away from the city. If you, if you drive from there, it's normally like a 45 minute commute into the city. If you were, if you were working in Boston. Um, so the kind of the qualifies the, as the suburbs. So that's where I grew up for like the first 13 years of my life. And then um, for kind of the end of middle school and for high school, I lived um, in the western part of Massachusetts in a town called Northampton, uh, which is closer to the biggest city that's nearby is Springfield, uh, Massachusetts. But it's also um, it's close to like uh, UMass Amherst and kind of all that uh, that whole area out there. Not the Simpsons Springfield. No, different, different Springfield. <laughs> yeah. That Springfield is known for being where the Basketball Hall of Fame is. So that's oh, where. Oh, gotcha. Right. Yeah. So, so it's like, was your mother and father, were they in the comedy or then in the sort of entertainment industry as well? As um, no, no, they, no, they weren't uh, in those industries at all. My, my mother was uh, a nurse. And my dad is like a, like a computer engineer. Nice. Um, so, uh, you know, both, both, you know, kind of white collar professionals, but not, not anything in the, in the, in the entertainment, uh, industry. Right. So what was your sort of like, like your first recollection of co- comedy? Like, I'm sure you would have like, like Saturday Night Live and Seinfeld was huge, you know, experience. Yeah. I think definitely because being my age, I, I am just old enough where I can kind of remember watching 
probably the last maybe two to three seasons of Seinfeld live or as they were happening. Oh, right. Probably, wow. Like, you know, so because uh, it was it was a big show and, you know, for a lot of people, uh, yeah. but it, including myself. But certainly at that point, the reruns, you know, were also even as the show was on, were on all the time. So yeah. uh, but I, you know, I do remember, you know, because I was probably I think I was maybe eight when Seinfeld went off the air. But I can remember seeing it from probably when I was like six or so right. seeing it live when it was happening. But then, of course, you know, you watch the rerun. So, you know, that was a yeah, that was a huge show for for everybody uh, at, at the time. And I definitely definitely did watch uh, watch Saturday Night Live for sure. And then I think yeah. they when I was a kid, they would also have those kind of half hour specials on Comedy Central. Where they would just be, you know, you'd go on Comedy Central and you'd be like, oh, there's a, you know, there's someone doing 25 minutes of stand up on TV and you'd kind of watch it. Um, you'd see that. But I would say overall, stand up and, and comedy wasn't like, I enjoyed comedy movies and whatever, but it wasn't like a huge thing for me. There was never a point in my childhood where I watched that and said, I want to do that or I can do that or I should do that. That's my calling. It was never a thing. There are a lot of people who, um, when they're young, they see, you know, that stuff and they're like, oh, I want to be a comedian or I want to try comedy when I'm older. That wasn't me. I never did that. I never thought about doing comedy when I was young. Right. And I also read that uh, just getting off the topic of, of comedy, you're a huge, and you were saying that before about the NBA, uh, you're a huge uh, Boston Major League uh, sporting fans. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, growing up in the Boston area, you know, you know, supported and you know, still now do support yeah. all the local, teams, you know, the you know, Red Sox, the Patriots, the Celtics, and even you know the the Bruins as well. So, um, yeah, and and I think yeah, I think growing up, especially early on, the Red Sox were the first big thing because I think in, uh, you know, they'd always kind of been that was the Red Sox were kind of who who Boston fans tied their identity into because they were, you know, they were this quote unquote, when I'm growing up there, this cursed franchise. Yes. Uh, yes. That, you know, that's kind of their identity of, you know, they hadn't, uh, you know, when I was 14 in 2004, they, you know, we, they won the, won the world series for the first time in, in 86 years. And that was, um, you know, this, this huge, huge event, but everything leading up to that, they had so many years where they were always a team that was, they were competitive, but they always they always fell short, and they always fell short in spectacular fashion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was it was all so this kind of led to the idea that they were that you know that they were that they were cursed, and then ironically they reversed the curse in the most improbable fashion. So um, oh, they're down three nil, and they won. They beat the Yankees in the, the next yeah. games, and then. Yeah. Their they most hated rivals. They were down three nothing in a in a best of seven series, so they had to win four in a row. Which um, still that they came back and did it. That's the only time in the history of baseball that anyone's ever done that, being down three zero and winning the series. So it's a, it was an incredible once in a lifetime thing. And then they swept the World Series. Wow. Yeah, so they basically went down three nil to the Yankees, then won eight in a row to win uh, the World Series. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm into my baseball as well. I used to play baseball oh, okay. in Australia, and actually, my team are the Atlanta Braves. I've been a Braves fan since oh. the the, the Glavin Maddox Smoltz, Chipper Jones. Uh, so you've um, had a lot of heart as well. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. I've been rooting very hard, even though I'm in Shanghai, and uh, it's about time we beat LA. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, I think uh, every, or, or everybody in the U.S. has sort of jumped on the Braves because, uh, you know, well, now Boston are out and, uh, you know, they beat the Dodgers and nobody likes Houston after what happened, you know, so. Um, well, it's funny, and I think that going back to the 80s and the 90s, there are a lot of Braves fans um, scattered around America but also around the world because, you know, the, the Braves were always on all of Ted Turner's networks so like so for people like in middle America who didn't have a team, you could always watch Braves games because they would be on TBS or TNT. Um, so, you know, I obviously grew up watching the Red Sox, but if I wasn't watching the Red Sox, I was probably watching a Braves game because Braves, that, yeah. was, that was that was the other game that was on that was easy to watch. 
Yeah, they had such a and they were they were a bit like Boston. They were always like thereabouts. They'd get to the World Series or they get to the playoffs and they they'd get bundled out and then that have the best records yeah. in the in the regular season and then just yeah. So I'm rooting really hard for them here. I hope they I hope they can beat Houston. It's gonna be tough. They got a good team. Well, yeah, Houston is good, but obviously I'm definitely. Being, you know, being a Red Sox fan, I'm def- definitely going to be rooting for rooting for the Braves in that series. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, you, I mean, you probably know this, but the, the the Braves are originally from Boston. So. Ah yes. So. Boston Braves. Uh, well. And uh, also they were from Milwaukee as well, and we knocked them yeah. out. So. There's all these yeah. affiliations. Growing up, like, uh, what was your sort of your major? So, I mean, in terms of. You talk about kind of younger in school or or in university. Uh we'll we'll both actually. Uh, I mean, I'd say when I when I was when I was younger, I mean, I really didn't really didn't know so much, you know, kind of what I wanted to do uh, in my life. I think once I got into sports, I was kind of thinking, oh, I wanted would want to do something in sports, but I wasn't quite sure what that meant because mm-hmm. at that at that point, I think the imagination for what you can do, what you could do in sports if you weren't uh, an athlete, it was a lot more limited. It was kind of like you're, you probably either, I guess it would be in three camps. You're either uh, a journalist, a broadcaster, or an agent. I think those yes. are really like the, now it's, now they're kind of more options. There are like, uh, you know, sports data analytics people. And um, it's kind of a lot more rich in terms of the careers that, that are you know are actually there, but so I guess there were there would probably been a period of time where it's like oh I want to be a sports broadcaster, but that was probably really because I was like oh that that's one of the only careers in sports that I know, or like I want to be a sports agent because that's one of the only careers that I know. It's like you know you see Jerry Maguire and you're like oh yeah whatever that, 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 looks, that looks cool, you know you kind of don't really know exactly what that um, what that entails. You know I think kind of probably around when I was in high school. You know, my, you know, my dad probably, you know, suggested, he was like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe you'd want to learn Chinese at some point. You know, that might be, right. might be a useful thing. And Chinese wasn't offered at my high school. Um, so I wasn't able to take it then, but I, so I only started, I started taking it in college. And that was, it wasn't my major. I majored in philosophy, politics, and economics, but I took Chinese every semester throughout college. And I did a study abroad in Beijing my, uh, my, my third year. Uh, for a semester, and we did this kind of immersion program where we had to sign a contract saying that we wouldn't speak English for the entire semester. Wow. Uh, so we had like a 24-hour language pledge where whether we were in class, at the cafeteria, in the dorm, out in the city, we had to be speaking Mandarin the whole time. That, that's forcing uh, you to. That's forcing you to do it. So, t- but t- tell us that experience. I mean, coming to you know China for the first time, like was it you know eyes wide open? You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I mean it was it was pretty big for me because I was someone who I for all intents and purposes before that trip, you know, I was I was twenty years old when I studied abroad. Uh, in Beijing, but really before that trip, I'd basically never been out of the U.S. I had maybe gone wow. to, maybe gone to, you know, Canada, maybe that like the Niag- the Canadian side of Niagara Falls, and then I think I'd been to the Caribbean like once. And right. other than that, I don't think I had ever left the U.S. So then I went from never having left the U.S. to uh, now I have to speak Chinese 24 hours a day <laughs> in. <laughs> And, you know, Amazing. a strange. So that was yeah. a really that was like a big jump to make. Hmm. As um, a 20 year and a 20 year old as well. I mean, you know, you just want to be going out and partying. Was it that sort of vibe or was it more constraint, more so um, focus on studying? It was a mix of both. I mean, I would say. There were, we had about 50 students in the program, so we were kind of pretty close. But in a, in a, even in a program that size, you develop there are a few different cliques that develop, a few different you know groups of people, um, and those cliques uh, you know developed around people who you know you were like minded. But it kind of also developed around the people who took this language pledge more or less seriously. So. There were kind of groups of people who hung out who kind of broke the language pledge more often. Then there was the group I was in who, um, 
especially the first couple months of the program, we took the language pledge very seriously and that it would, we would really only break it if we were out late at night on a weekend and then we, you know, started to get really drunk and then all of a sudden it's like <laughs> some people slip into English and then a couple more people crack and they slip into English. Then before the, you realize it, you're in a group of 10 people and eight of them are now speaking English. Only two of them are speaking Chinese. And then it's kind of, it all goes to, it, it all goes to shit. It, it would be like a <laughs> process. Um, yeah. So it, it was a mix. Like for me, because we, we basically had like, you know, it was 20 plus hours of class a week just learning Mandarin. And we were, you know, we had a bunch of new vocabulary every night. We had, and we had dictation every day in class with that new vocabulary, you know, where the, mm-hmm. you know, the teacher would basically just be saying out, you know, the sentences with the new vocabulary and you had to just write it down as mm-hmm. she was saying it. So you really needed to be studying hard every night or else you were going to be failing these dictations every day and falling yeah. behind. So I would say during the week, it was a lot of hard work, you know, both in class, but also um, you're just exhausted because you're speaking a language that you're not that great at yet 24 hours a day. So you're just always tired because you're having to think about what you say all the time. So I would say during the week, thing you know it was a lot of focus on study but um still a lot of fun on the weekends you know because at that yes. point at that point beijing was a really um not that it isn't now but it was a really kind of culturally vibrant city there were a lot of foreigners and you didn't i think what the difference between one of the big differences between beijing then and now is um especially because then that was before you know it, it was the the you know a bit of the 2010 was still the the end of the kind of the the, the previous regime, and mm. it was it was still a time when there wasn't the, there wasn't like a specter hanging over Beijing where just because you were in Beijing you felt like you were being watched the whole time or or, or anything like that. Um, yes. You just kind of felt like you were free to kind of do whatever do whatever you wanted, kind of come as come as you go. Um, it was kind of just a a different time where no one really thought about any of that stuff. Right. And it wasn't top of mind. You just kind of felt like you were you were free to do whatever you wanted within you know within reason. Any good memories uh, from that trip? So yeah, I mean through the program we did we did the Great Wall, we did that, um, and then I also did in the middle of the semester I did this through the program I did this service learning trip um, out to out to Guizhou um, oh, in Southwest wow. China. So yeah, we right. actually. Yeah, so we stayed in a village kind of with the Miao people for like five days. Um, that's that's so so interesting because that's exactly what my kids at, at school are, st- are studying now. Uh, really? we're, we're gonna ha- we're gonna spend seven weeks on the Mao the Mao people Guizhou. So we're gonna study oh, about wow. the mountains, about what they wear, and all that sort of stuff. So so interesting how you sort of did that. Yeah, maybe so we went. Maybe I, can get you, maybe I can get you on, and you can have a question answer with the kids. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No. It was. It was at this point. It was so long ago, but I do have definitely a lot of memories from there because it was. It was really only the five days that we stayed with them. But you know, as you know, it's a completely different world from the rest of China. You know, there's no there's no electricity there. There's no internet. There's no plumbing. Really, they they may have some outdoor showers. Um, you know, but, you know, when you go to the bathroom, it's in a hole in the ground. Um, it's, it's, it's very much, it's, you know, this is how, oh, it's, you know, obviously less and less of China lives like this now, but there are still many parts of China that, uh, that do. So going there being completely disconnected from the world for even a few days, um, you know, and also it's, you're in the mountains and it was like, Towards the, it was about the same time of year that it is now. It was about the the end of October. So when you're in the mountains in China, the end of October, it's it's not warm. It starts to get a little chilly. So uh, taking outdoor showers at that time of year uh, was not a, not enjoyable. I, I just <laughs> say that say that now. But no, we were there helping them to build a new water runoff trough to increase That's their water good. supply. So. It was a lot of like uh, carrying sand on those, you know, those yokes um, mm. where you carry sand, carrying bags of really heavy bags of cement 
and kind of working with them there. But that's one of those things where you realize, like, some of these old Chinese people are freakishly strong. Yeah. yeah uh, like these, these, these old men that, you know, that you, you look at them and you're like, I could pick you up with my pinky. And these guys, are, <laughs> these guys are just throwing these big bags of cement over their shoulders. And there was also right by where we worked. So we were working in this kind of main area in the center of the village. But below that, there was this really steep staircase that led down to kind of like a little bit of a barn or a storage area where they had all these bags of cement. So there was a period of time where if you were bringing the cement to the working area, you had to throw it over your shoulder. But then you're walking up this really steep staircase you know, that's just like straight up and down. So you got to make sure you can get up this staircase. But because the cement's on your shoulder, you got to be careful that your momentum's not taking you back and you don't fall yeah. off the stair trying to get up it. It was, no, the, 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 the people there were great and they're, you know, really strong. And as you said, a, a really interesting culture. We kind of got to see kind of the, the headdresses. And yeah. The they're very iconic the and unique. And- and, you know, yeah, kind of these these bright, you know, silver and gold, you know, kind of uh, headpieces that they have. Um, also nice. a really big, really big drinking culture there. They drink a lot, <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of rice wine. Rice wine. Um, oh, the Baijiu. Oh, dear. But you get to yeah, try that? that? Yeah. Well, so, this, so it was it was mostly rice wine. So it wasn't they didn't make Baijiu there. They had kind of their own. I think they made their own rice wine. Right, um, right. So it wasn't bad, but that was just kind of, they just kind of had that like all the time. Like, so but yeah, I stayed, me and, you know, one of my good, you know, pals on that, on that trip, we kind of stayed in, in a house with, you know, one of the, one of the local villagers there. And I think in a, in a typical China fashion, we ate, uh, a duck and I, I, I watched him slit the neck of the duck that we ended up eating that night. I mean, that's very, that's a that's a very China story, but it it, it literally happened that way. So it, it's it's so true. I, I I did the same thing, and like they skinned like a goat. They mm-hmm. they brought the goat in on on the truck. They took it off. They killed it, and then they're just like people walking by, you know, and they're just like kids going to school, and it's just absolutely yeah. stunk. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh my god, what are they? <laughs> Isn't there a right. back room that they can sort of do this? <laughs> no, it's just out in the open. It's normal. <laughs> just out there. And were you able to use your Mandarin that you've sort of been learning? Or are they, are they, they got their, like, their own language there? Or is it so far down that they're actually using Cantonese? So at that point, I had had enough practice where I did feel comfortable talking to them, which is like my Mandarin was kind of good enough. Um, but at the same time, they, they did speak... So they they obviously had their own dialect, but they yes. but they did speak Mandarin. But many of them kind of spoke with a pretty heavy accent, so uh, kind of under, understanding them could be a little difficult. But we I was able to communicate with them, maybe not perfectly, but it definitely was able to have some communication for yeah, sure. Right. And what an amazing experience to go back to the U.S. and just be able to tell those stories to people like they probably wouldn't believe you, right? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things I'm really glad I did it because especially over the time that I was living in China as a professional, just by the nature of what I was doing, I, if I, even if I traveled, I was mostly going to cities, uh, yeah. of various kinds, which is still cool. But to have even just that one experience being way out in the country, I'm glad I had that just for the perspective because I didn't really get to do that much later on. Yeah, right. So when this all finished, uh, did you go back to the U.S. and continue like your study, or? Yeah, so after that semester was done, I went back to the U.S. and kind of, you know, finished the last, you know, year and a half of my degree there. Um, and were you, and then, uh, were you like, were you sort of like wanting to go back, or no intentions of going back to China, or you just pretty happy to just finish your studies, or? I mean, I think I was, I was figuring, I was like, I'll finish, you know, you know my, uh, you know my studies at university. And then kind of see what's out there in terms of jobs. I did have an idea huh. at the point that I might want to go back to China. But at the same time, I was thinking to myself, um, I'm not just going to go back to China for the sake of going back to China. I think it needs to be for a worthwhile opportunity. Mm. Um, so, so as I said, I did, I worked for like a year 
in New York in consulting, but I know that, that job was at least, and at least a part of the job that I was working in was never really going to have any travel, was never going to take me anywhere. I mean, it was, it was a good job and it paid well. Um, mm. but I was like, it's never going to be any international element here. This job is never going to take me to China. So I looked, I started looking a little bit and I, and I applied kind of not on a whim, but, uh, but kind of as like, you know, as just like, Oh, let's see if this goes anywhere. I saw this opportunity, uh, this job posting for like a, a special assistant to the CEO of a real estate investment firm that was wow. kind of based Hong Kong and Tokyo and had, you know, but were that involved a lot of travel. And I was like, Oh, you know, I'm kind of in business. That would be, that would be interesting. It would get me back to Asia. It, it, you know, I'd be able to presumably learn, you know, from the CEO who was spending so much time with them learn a business like that, you know, that would be cool. Um, but you know, so I applied for this job and it was this really long process where I think I maybe saw the posting in March. I applied for it. I got like, I got maybe, maybe did like a Skype interview with, you know, the guy who was currently in the role. We kind of talked and then he was like, Oh, you know, the, you know, the guy, the CEO, you know, wants to do an in-person interview with you, um, in Tokyo. So, uh, I got flown out to Tokyo for an interview from New York. As you do. <laughs> well, it was, it was nuts because, you know, when you're working a regular schedule, a regular, you know, job, uh, you know, a Monday to Friday, you know, especially in the U.S., you know, you can't just take time off on on a whim, especially in consulting. It's it's not that easy to take time off. And this interview was going to be, I want to say it was on a, a, a Wednesday in Tokyo. So, which is obviously that's right in the middle of the week. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> if you're doing If you're doing your math and knowing when the days are. And so I had to obviously create some excuse for why I needed to take time off in the middle of the week, like a Tuesday through Thursday. Um, so I needed to leave like work late afternoon on a Monday to catch a Monday night flight from New York, which gets into Tokyo on Tuesday night, Tokyo yeah. time. That's and what then, I was trying to think the time difference. Yeah. Right. So then come off of the jet lag, basically go Tuesday night, land in Tokyo, you know, go straight to the hotel and wake up, go to this, go to this interview, wow. you know, hang out for the night there, uh, you know, with the people and then fly back on Thursday to the U.S. and go to work on Friday. That was, uh, that was absolutely nuts, uh, spending yeah. there for less than, less than 48 hours, uh, for an interview. Three months later, you know, I, they made me wait forever, but there were a lot of candidates for this job, I assume. Yeah. Um, but I ended up getting it, uh, which was, which was fantastic. So I quit, I quit my job in New York and I started doing that one in like October and I, you know, I moved, so I moved there, but it was this really weird thing where this job was technically like based out of Hong Kong and Tokyo because that was where the two major offices of this company were. But I didn't really have a home because I was traveling so much. Right. Like I didn't I never have, I didn't have an apartment. Um, wow. Well, because I was always traveling. I was technically Hong Kong was my home base. Uh, I was paid into a Hong Kong bank account, but I, I didn't have an apartment there. But that that job, you know, I got to travel a lot. Uh, you know, I, even the first like two months I was on that job, I got to go to Hong Kong, Tokyo, Taipei, New York, L.A. and Orange County, London, Frankfurt, uh, Israel and Hawaii. It was it was nuts, uh, a lot of traveling, but a, a great experience. Really, quite suddenly, about four or five months into it, maybe in like February, I was very suddenly let go. So it, it, wow. it, it, it ended it ended pretty quickly without really any warning. We were in Hong Kong, and uh, the boss kind of asked me to just bring him some documents at the Four Seasons residences, which is where he lived uh, in Hong <laughs> Kong. Um, pretty nice place. And um, I was in the lobby of the Four Seasons residences, and I, re I still can picture what the lobby looks like. Uh, I was sitting on the couch, and I gave him his documents, and he just kind of looked at me, and he said, I need to make a change. 
and that was basically it. Uh, I was, wow. I was, I was done with the, with, with the job kind of immediately, but I needed to fly. I needed to fly to Tokyo to like do some HR exit stuff. And then I kind of needed to fly back to the U S cause I didn't have, I didn't have a job or I didn't have any, I didn't also didn't have any life beyond that job. That was, mm-hmm. that was the whole structure of my life. I didn't have a social life in Asia yet. Uh, I didn't have friends or even an apartment. So I, I didn't have anything now that this job went away. And for you at that stage, how, how did it make you feel? I mean, you, you, you made a huge commitment. You, you went through all the process of the interviews and all that, you know, traveling the world. And then all of a sudden just did it, was it something that, come you know it was over time or just bang no i mean it, it was it just happened i mean it's one of those things where once it happens if you look back then you can mm. say oh maybe this was a sign or this was a sign mm. but yeah. those signs would have been oh over the last month or two before this maybe he wasn't putting as much on my plate as he could have been right but that's a hard thing to notice in the moment because also yeah. I was new to the job and it's, it's an atypical position because you're, and I really have tons of respect for anyone who could be a, a special assistant or an executive assistant of any kind. Mm. That is such a tough job because you need to be on your toes, ready to go at any moment. It's a lot of putting out fires. You don't really have a regular <laughs> schedule. You're at the whims of another human being. Oftentimes yeah. you don't have your own, your own life. You don't even totally have your weekends all the time because even if you do, in the back of your mind, you have to just think to yourself, I need to be ready in case they need me for something, even if they don't end up needing you for anything. So you really can't have your own life when you're working for someone like that. He was also, um, he was brilliant, but he was also, um, a high maintenance CEO. I, I would yeah. just say someone who, yeah you know, kind of was one of these, one of these mad geniuses that, you know, can, knows everything about real estate, knows the markets, can predict, can predict, you know, economic cycles, but his whole life is kind of this, a disorganized mess. One of like, you know, one of those types of people. So I have the, I have the utmost respect for, for anyone who's uh, able to kind of do something like that. Uh, I just think that that's, it's, it's a really tough job. And I think, you know, if I'm being fully honest, I think that I wasn't, I, you know, I don't think that type of role was the best fit for me. Like just, in, just in general, I wanted the opportunity, uh, of, of having, of having that, but it was, you know, it, it was a lot in terms of just kind of having to be on your toes and be ready. But also he was the type of CEO where, a lot when you're an executive assistant a lot of your job is anticipating your boss's needs and yes. almost reading their mind as to what they require at any uh at any given um at any given moment so for me but he was he was the type of person who's very unpredictable you know his the person he started the company with and who was like kind of his partner was a friend of his who he'd known since he was like six years old. So they had known each other for like 40 yeah, years, right. Uh, right. like a childhood. And even that guy, I talked, I talked to that guy and he's like, yeah, I don't know what Bill's thinking most of the time. And he's like, I've known him for 40 years. <laughs> I can't, I can't read his mind either a lot of times. So, you know, me as someone who's brand new, you know, just met the guy, you know, anticipating someone who's that volatile and their needs was challenging. And as I said, I probably wasn't cut out for the role, but also there wasn't really any uh, transparent feedback as to what I could have done better in the process yeah. as things were going. Yeah. Because when you're new at a job and you're just learning things, you learn by doing or you learn by people telling you like, oh, no, that's not how we do it here. Or that's not how I like it done. And then you adjust. But if no one ever tells you that, um, you just keep pissing them off forever and ever and ever <laughs> until they decide to to fire you, which is kind of what happened. <laughs> so when that happened, I went back to New York because I actually still had a girlfriend at that time in New York. So we had been doing long distance while I was wow. in Asia. Did you think at this point that maybe this was like the last time work-wise that you'd come back to, to Asia? Or was there always like the 
motivation to come back and do it, try again? Yeah, I mean, it really, I mean, I had to think because it, 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 like, I, like I really thought to myself, like, if, wow, if that happened, like, is that, is that a sign that I'm not supposed to be in Asia? Like, it, yes. You know, like, like you start, you start to think that way. But then when I was in New York and I started looking for jobs, I was looking for jobs both in New York, that area, but also looking for stuff in China just to see what's out there. And I, you know, I had one final interview for a position in the New York area, but besides that, I was just getting more traction on the stuff I was looking into in China. Like I was just getting more interviews and then the, as I said, the offer I ended up getting was to work for a real estate developer in Shanghai. And I was like, well, I gotta get, I gotta get my career off the ground. Um, yes. you know, I've been unemployed for a few months. Uh, luckily, the one good thing was with that, with the job, um, at the previous company, since they let me go very suddenly without any warning, um, I did get a good severance package, you know, because they didn't, you know, they didn't, want me, you know, complaining and stuff. It was, you know, they gave me a good amount of money to go away. So, um, <laughs> which, which made it a lot easier to kind of take my time looking for a job, you know, whatever job was right. But then I kind of was like, well, what I saw that I wasn't getting a lot of offers in America and I saw like, oh, a real estate developer in Shanghai. I was like, well, if I'm ever going to move to China, this is it. Hmm. Like, you know, I've got a real job offer there. This is this is the chance. So I kind of jumped at it, and then I was there for the next seven years. Hi, I'm Nigel the Shanghai Psychic. I can tune into your loved ones in the spirit world, but I can also tune into you, tell you about your path and the choices that you need to make and need to know. I'm currently giving thirty percent discount on all Tell Craig Your Story listeners. Just use the code. Tell Craig your story for 30% off your first psychic reading with me online at Nigel the Shanghai Psychic.